You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6pm on March 5, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. I'm going to read now from John chapter 17. Um, this is considered to be Jesus' high priestly prayer, the whole chapter, but tonight we're only dealing with five verses, the first five verses, okay? So here we go. John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word and let us pray. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we we just uh, thank you for this record of Jesus' prayer as he prays for his disciples and for the world and he prays to you for himself. Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and so that we can hear what you're saying to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Arthur Stace was a loser. He was a no-hoper. He was an alcoholic and completely illiterate. He lived in the streets of Sydney, regarded by many who saw him as a lost cause. But one Sunday night in 1932, he entered St Barnabas Anglican Church in Sydney and he heard the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Arthur, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, left the church, crossed the road and sat under a tree in Victoria Park where he committed his life to Jesus Christ. He had become a new creation. And later that year he heard the preaching of an evangelist, John G. Ridley. He heard him at the Burton Street Baptist Tabernacle in Darlinghurst in Sydney. In his urgent, commanding voice, John Ridley cried, Eternity, eternity. Oh, that this word could be emblazoned across the streets of Sydney. Arthur Stace, the little man who still couldn't read or write, he left the church, he took some yellow chalk, bent down and wrote one word on the footpath. And throughout the night for the next 40 years, while Sydney slept, Arthur would take the chalk and write in immaculate copperplate handwriting. Beautiful handwriting. The word eternity on footsteps, entrances to train stations and anywhere else he thought would catch people's attention. As Sydney siders disembarked, from their commuter trains early each morning, they would see this word as they walked to work. 
Now, it's uh, 23 years since, but as the year 2000 was welcomed, the word eternity in Stace's handwriting was emblazoned not across the streets of Sydney as John Ridley had wished, but across the face of Sydney Harbour Bridge. And thanks to modern technology, it was seen all around the world. Eternity was the word that was chosen to be featured on the Harbour Bridge at the dawn of the year 2000. Because Sydney's fireworks uh, display was the first of the international celebrations and was telecast around the world, people in every continent were able to witness the miracle that God performed when he touched the life of a little, one little, insignificant man, Arthur Stace, a man who heard the voice of God and responded by committing his life to preaching his one-word sermon, Eternity. Now, as we turn to John 17, the Apostle John records for us one of the golden nuggets of Scripture. For the means of eternal life is made clear, and the free gift of eternal life is given to any who, like Arthur Stace, will repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. That through his death and through his resurrection, he came to save sinners. And in John 17, the Apostle John has recorded clearly for us that eternal life begins when you come to know intimately God through his glorified Son. In chapter 17, we come to an area of Scripture that truly reveals to us the wonderful heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this chapter is entirely a prayer. It's indeed the Lord's Prayer, which has come to be known as Jesus' high priestly prayer because Jesus now acts in a high priestly manner. So, friends, as we contemplate this, as we talk about this now, we are on holy ground. Nowhere are the words of Calvin, John Calvin, truer than here about the Gospel of John. Here we see the soul of Jesus. Jesus is finished speaking to his disciples and now he turns to his Father in heaven where eavesdropping his prayer. We're hearing a prayer of Jesus. Do you ever wonder what kind of words Jesus used when he prayed? How did he pray? Well, this is how he prayed. This is Jesus' prayer language. John Knox had this prayer read to him every day during his last days when he was ill and when, when he knew he was dying. And just before the end, he confessed to drawing from this prayer the greatest source of comfort and strength. Now, this prayer is divided into three sections. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for the people of God. Tonight, we're just looking at verses 1 to 5. In verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As Jesus begins this prayer, he speaks intimately with God, whom he calls Father. So you might be wondering, 
What has prompted Jesus? Why is Jesus now praying this prayer? In verse 1 we can find that he was prompted by the fact that his saving role has now arrived. Jesus had come to that point of a predetermined moment in history for something of significance to happen. Redemption is about to happen. At this very beginning, Jesus acknowledges that in God's sovereignty, his time has come. The hour has come, he says. And Jesus continues, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now this is indicating something. It indicates that Jesus is moving towards a climax of events. That is the glorification of the Son. The glorification of the Son. And this is John's shorthand for that cluster of events which comprises his crucifixion, it comprises his burial, his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation with God the Father. Jesus hasn't arrived at these events due to some chance or, or due to fate. These events have been preordained by God and now Jesus is motivated to pray and he prays for his own glorification as well as the Father's. And what is the glory of the Son? It's a glory of shame. It's the glory of the cross. The hour has come where the cross is eminent or imminent. And some of you may have gone away on a significant holiday. When you do, there are many things to prepare. And the day of departure gets closer and then it comes. The departure time arrives. And if you've forgotten something, well, it's too late. Jesus has come and he's not trying to avoid the cross that is approaching. Everything that needed to be done prior to this moment has been completed. Now, praying for his own glorification will result in the glorification of the Father. And this should trigger greater consideration of what is happening here and what is at stake. When Jesus came as an infant and grew up into a man, we still don't realise what this meant for the Son of God. Before his coming, he was in heaven. He's the second person of the Trinity. Yes, God is one. But there are three persons of the Trinity. And he's the second person. And he's in his full glorified state before he came as a man. We are reminded of this in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. But he gave all that up for a reason, didn't he? He stepped out of eternity and into time to fulfil the redemptive plan of the Father. But now Jesus commits his imminent death into God's hands. Jesus' major concern is that his death will glorify the Father. He doesn't ask that God will save him from this hour, but rather to keep him and sustain him so that through his death, it will bring glory to God. 
In this prayer, Jesus displays to us that he is to be, that he is the obedient, dependent son of the Father. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And there is this idea that Jesus is sharing his Father's glory, which implies that he is God. He is the God-man. In verse 2, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. In verse 2, Jesus was given authority over all flesh, which means that he was given authority over all of humanity. But this authority that Jesus has been given is based on the Son's prospective obedience as he submits himself to suffer the humiliation of the cross in his death and resurrection and, and exaltation. It's nothing less than obedience to the redemptive plan of God. You see, God had a plan. Right before he created, he had a plan. And the second part of the verse makes it clear concerning the purpose of Jesus being granted authority so that the Son might give eternal life to all those the Father has given him. As the Father is glorified before human beings, so they are brought to faith in the Son and the one who sent him. To gain eternal life was the purpose of the grant of that authority. And this is given to the Son to grant. It's Jesus who gives believers eternal life, although the authority of the grant is over all human beings. The purpose of the grant is for those that the Father has given the Son, that they might have eternal life. And here we have a clear statement of God's sovereign purposes that extends to the election of those who will be redeemed. And in the doctrines of the sovereignty of God's grace, the idea of election presents some difficulties for some. Many are willing to embrace the five points of Calvinism. And I can just say to you that there are more than five points of Calvinism. But we learn these five points of Calvinism. That's another long story. In the Ackerman Tulip, if one of the petals of this flower is lopped off, the one petal that's often lopped off is the L, which stands for limited atonement. Those people call themselves four-point Calvinists if they lop off the L. And it seems that the doctrine of limited atonement is the area that presents the most difficulties. Most evangelists, of course, will recite that other well-known verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. To prove their point, let's examine this idea of limited atonement. If we ask if the atonement of Christ was a real atonement, did Jesus really or only potentially satisfy the demands of God's justice if indeed Christ provided a propitiation 
and expiation for all human beings and for all their sins, then clearly all persons will be saved. Now propitiation is the appeasement or the satisfying of God's wrath. And expiation means to cover sins. It's wiping away sin. If we consider that the atonement is universal and that Jesus died for all, this would mean that there is universal salvation. However, most Christians who reject limited atonement also reject universal salvation. They are what we call particularists, not universalists. They still insist on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that only believers are saved by the atonement of Christ, but if that is so, then the atonement in some sense, it must be limited or restricted to a definite group. And this group is believers. If Christ died for all the sins of all people, that must include also the sin of unbelief. If God's justice is totally satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross, then it would follow that God would be unjust in punishing the unrepentant sinner for his unbelief and impenitence because those sins were already paid for by Christ. People usually get around this by citing the saying, Christ's atonement was sufficient for all but efficient only for some. Christ's atonement was sufficient for all but efficient only for some. What does this mean? The Calvinists would interpret this saying to mean that the value of Christ's sacrifice is so high, his merit so extensive that its worth is, it's, is equal to cover all the sins of humanity. But the atonement benefits are only efficient for believers, the elect. The non-Calvinist interprets this saying in slightly different ways. Christ's atonement was good enough to save everyone and was intended to make salvation possible for everyone, but that its intention is realised only by believers. The atonement is efficient only for those who receive its benefits by faith. As I said, this is still a form of limited atonement. Its effectiveness is limited by human response. And sadly, this kind of limit puts a limit on the saving work of Christ, far greater than any limit of the atonement. The real issue is the design and purpose of God's plan in laying upon his son the burden of the cross. Was it God's purpose simply to make salvation possible for all but certain for none? Did God have to wait to see if any would respond to Christ in his death and resurrection to make his atonement effective? Was it theoretically possible that Jesus would die for all yet never see the fruit of his labour and be satisfied? Or was it God's eternal purpose and design of the cross to make salvation certain for his elect, for those he has chosen? Was there a special sense in which Christ died for his own, for the sheep the Father had given him? So Jesus has the authority to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. Thus eternal life is granted by Jesus by, when by faith a penitent, penitent person believes in his death and resurrection as a substitutionary sacrifice. 
This is when you begin to know God intimately. Eternal life begins when you come to know God intimately through his glorified son. Now in verse 3, this is, now this is eternal life that, you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when we come to verse 3, the granting of eternal life is for those who personally know God and they know Jesus. This is the integral part of new covenant people. From the very least to the very greatest, we are able to know God personally and the same for his son without an intermediary. And to know God is not just some cognitive knowledge about God in our heads. It means knowing him in a living, real fellowship with him. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were encouraged to know the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Shema, they call it. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is the sole agent of this one true God. He is the Messiah sent by God the Father. He is the Christ, which is the Greek form of the word Messiah, which means the anointed one. And just as there is one true God, there is only one way to the Father, and that way is through the Son. When we come to verse 4, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. In verse 4, Jesus is looking back on his ministry. And it's here that he commits his immediate future into the Father's hands. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he brought, he brought glory to God. Even his incarnation itself was a display of God's glory. But his work on the cross will now bring Glory to God. It's a great paradox, isn't it? To consider that the cross will bring glory to God and to the Son. But it's at the cross that Jesus deals with sin. It's at the cross where Jesus deals with your sin and he deals with mine. It's at the cross where the sting of death is finally defeated and where Satan is defeated because at the cross, there was only one person capable of complete and total obedience and that person is Jesus, the Son of God. Prophet Habakkuk foresaw a time when the earth, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, eternal life begins when you come to know God intimately through his glorified son. And now in verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. When we come to verse 5, Jesus is now asking the Father that the glory he first had, that it be returned. This is the glory that he shared with the Father in heaven as the second person of the Trinity before the world was even created before creation began, which implies that the incarnation of Jesus, when Jesus was born as a baby, entails a forfeiture of glory. When Jesus came in human form, he gave up that former glory that he had formerly possessed. 
We read in John chapter 1, verse 14, it states clearly, clearly, when the word became flesh, this new human condition was not designed to be temporary. When Jesus is glory, glorified, he didn't leave his body in the grave. He rose again with a transformed, glorified body, which then on his ascension returns to the Father. In this sense, the former glory of, of Jesus is returned to him. Eternal life begins when you come to know intimately God through Son, glorified Son. Now, Arthur Stace left his legacy in a word for all to see. And, of course, that word is eternity. Our knowledge of God informs us that he alone is eternal. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also eternal. And God has been glorified by the work of the Son through his death on the cross and in his resurrection that followed. Now authority to grant eternal life rests with Jesus and he grants eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. Now you may think, how can I be sure that eternal life has been granted to me? Friends, you can be sure and you can be certain when you truly repent of your sins and trust, that is, have faith, in the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection to save you. And when that happens, you come to know, you come to know Jesus and God personally. Jesus prayed for his glorification so that the Father would be glorified. And the Father was indeed glorified when his plan of redemption was carried out. So when does eternal life begin? When do you think it begins? Does one have to die before eternal life begins? No. Eternal life begins when you come to know God intimately through his glorified son. Such an, a, a, an easy answer or a simple answer to those who know and believe. But for those who believe, you're already living in eternity, friends. You are already in eternity. Just think about that. When your life on this earth is over. Your life will continue in the presence of God. How wonderful that will be. This is the glorious, blessed hope that we have. It's the promise of the gospel that through the shame of the cross, the Son would be glorified. And friends, this is the message that we all long for people to understand for people to come to know personally so that they will come to know God in intimately through the glorified Son. Would it be that we all understand this and know this from today? Amen. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, Jesus was indeed glorified in his death on the cross that he glorified you through his death, that he was able to complete and submit himself to the obedience of going to the cross to bear your wrath upon himself when he died a shameful death. And Lord, we pray that by faith 
Each of us will know you intimately. And Lord, that our family and our friends may know you intimately. That the stranger that we come to know may know you intimately, Lord, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you will indeed write eternity on our hearts. Give us a sense of eternity in our being, not to take for granted, but to be thankful. And Lord, help us to be, continue to be effective witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be followers and disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.